Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 26th. There are a couple of things I want to accomplish on today's show. A, I got to get my final thoughts on what was a phenomenal three days of tennis at the 2022 Labor Cup. Now, certainly Roger Federer's final pro event was always going to be a grand affair, but between the pageantry of Laver Cup between the quality of tennis, the storylines we saw unfold on court these past three days, captivating for just about every tennis fan. So, of course, I want to offer my final thoughts, not only on what happened on the court, including, of course, two signature victories from Francis Tiafo and Felix Ogier-Aliassime. I don't care if Djokovic was a bit banged up on day three for Felix to beat Djokovic the way that he did, given what the scoreline was between the two teams for Francis Tiafo to come up clutch once again. You know, he's on that short list, probably one of the five, 10 best players over the past six weeks in men's pro tennis. And to see Tiafo not only earn the clinching victory for Team World, to see him do it against Stefano Tsitsipas, a guy he's obviously had success against now a couple of times in his career. We've got to talk about a rising Francis Tiafo, talk about why Jack Sock is probably one of the three most valuable players on either Laver Cup roster. And then again, offer my final thoughts on what was an outstanding three-day event. I will say, if you want to hear some thoughts on where Laver Cup fits big picture in the tennis ecosystem, you want to hear some thoughts on how this Laver Cup event can continue to improve moving forward, I want to recommend someone else's show to all of you listeners. It's called Monday Match Analysis. It's a show recorded and hosted by my dear friend and returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, Gil Gross. And Gil was kind enough to invite me on the, his Laver Cup recap episode. So if you want to hear extended thoughts from me, a conversation between myself and Gil, head on over to YouTube, search Monday Match Analysis or Gil Gross. You'll be able to find the episode. Certainly, I enjoyed my time on the show, and I think it's a confirmation, uh, a conversation, excuse me, a supplemental conversation that all of you listeners will enjoy. So if you're looking for more Labor Cup thoughts after today's episode, head on over to that Monday match analysis feed. Of course, that's one of a couple things, again, I want to accomplish on this show. There was also plenty of tour-level action throughout the course of the last weekend. A couple of rising stars in both the ATP and WTA games continued to assert themselves over the course of the past week. In particular, I'm referring, of course, to both Ludmilla Samsonova and Brandon Nakashima. For Samsonova, you listeners are probably sick of hearing me say the stats, but 18 of her last 19 
have ended in the winner's circle for Samsonova. It's a third title here in the hardcourt summer, fourth title of her career for her to beat Jung Chin Wen in the 5-5 five and five fashion that she did just continues to affirm uh, Samsonova's coming, and we're going to have to factor her in not only over the next 12 months, but very likely over the course of the next decade as well. She's got that sort of disruptive power. I don't care who your opponent, uh, who the opponent is on her best day. She's just going to hang around, and I will continue why uh, to explain why I feel as much here on today's show, of course. For BNOC, Brandon Nakashima, near and dear friend of us here at Cracked Rackets, you can go hear my conversation with him from about a month ago over on the Cracked Interviews podcast, and despite him now capturing his first ATP title. I actually think that conversation holds up pretty well. So head on over to our website, CrackedRackets.com, Google Brandon Nakashima Cracked Interviews Podcast, or just go find the Cracked Interviews Podcast wherever you listen to your shows to hear that conversation. Point is, massive summer continues for BNOC. He's now 22-10 and 10 since the start of the French Open and finally captures that first ATP title in San Diego, earns it in definitive fashion over Marcos Giron in Sunday's final. We can talk about what separated Nakashima from Giron, why Nakashima's floor match in, match out. Not even necessarily his ceiling, which I think continues to be risen, but his floor in particular is what makes him such an appealing prospect moving forward. You watch enough Brandon Nakashima, his game just makes sense. And I'll explain why I feel that way on today's show. And then, of course, get into title runs from Lorenzo Sanego, Ekaterina Alexandrova, a.k.a. Ecat, both of whom were excellent in their straight set victories in the final. Want to put a final bow on all of last week's action before we make the pivot tomorrow to what is another jam-packed week of play in the pro tennis world, I suppose. A bit of a tease since I imagine most of you listeners are already aware of this fact. Got three tour-level events on the men's side. Tel Aviv, Seoul, uh, Bulgaria. So Sofia is the other one. Of course, on the women's side, you've got the red clay action in Parma. You've got indoor hardcourt action in Estonia as well. Tennis world never sleeps, and neither do we here at Cracked Rackets. And we promise to have you covered on everything happening this week. I do. I can guarantee it because we locked in the date, and both of us have been frustrated that we haven't had the opportunity to pod together recently. So I can promise to all of you listeners that tomorrow's show will be a regular Tennis Tuesday, uh, Tennis Point Tuesday, excuse me, edition of this mini break podcast. Nate Walworth going to join me to set the scene, talk through the biggest storylines happening throughout the course of the week. I do also want to plug a great conversation we had on the Cracked Interviews, a couple of them. We had top 20 doubles player in the world, Tokyo doubles finalist Ellen Perez on the show last week. We have Ben Shelton, tennis wunderkind, 2022 NCAA singles champion, and arguably the hottest thing in the tennis world since sliced bread. Uh, He joined us on the podcast this week as well. So a couple of good conversations over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Of course, we've got daily preview podcasts for you each and every day over on the Great Shot podcast feed as we continue our mission to ensure you fans remain the most well-informed, best-educated tennis fans out there. Again, all that content available on the website, crackedrackets.com or available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Of course, here on the mini break, have to give a special shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support day in, day out of all the nonsense we like to conduct 
here at Cracked Rackets, of course, you can get yourself the best equipment at the best prices by going to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15. Not only will it let them know we sent you there, but you'll get 15% off all sale items free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. Simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, apologies as always for the extended intro, extended monologue. I am also hoping as just for the record, and I think some of you listeners will be aware of this already, I am in Los Angeles this week doing a little work for our friends at Tennis Channel as I am broadcasting as part of their T2 streaming service. The reason I bring this up you're at Tennis Channel Studios, you just have the opportunity to run into cool people. So my man, JMG, Jan Michael Gamble, he's in studio all week long. I'll try to cajole him into coming on to the show. Maybe we'll get a little B-dub action, my friend, and commentator Brian Weber. Certainly, Gil knows he's always open to come on this show. Maybe we'll have him this week as well. But given I am at Tennis Channel Studios, I will do my best to pester all of the many talented and big brains they have at TC Studio to try and get them on the show and try to mix things up a little bit this week here on this podcast. That said, going to be a solo monologue pod for all of you listeners today. And the place I have to start is with the event of the week, right? You look at who won last week's action. What are the biggest storylines we're talking about coming off of Sunday? Got to start with Laver Cup. And of course, big picture, shout out to Team World, I suppose, on their victory. Now, do these results actually matter? Some would argue now that they are statistically relevant. Maybe they are a little bit more important and it is a glorified exhibition, not just an exhibition. That said, ultimately, again, no points awarded for this event, but credit to Team World, man. I mean, they're down 8-4, so down, you know, six matches to two, or six to two, no, 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 five matches to three, heading into the finals day's competition. And what do they do? They come out and they sweep the first three matches and ultimately clinch the first victory in Team World history. And I mean, a lot of that starts, of course, with Jack Sock. You got to give the man credit. He each and every year just performs so exceptionally well on the doubles court. And, you know, you start out the final day. It's Felix and Sock coming back from a set down in front of a hostile crowd. They earn a 2-6-6-3-10-8 third set victory. You look for Sock. He goes 2-1 and one overall on the weekend, but, you know, plays in all three doubles rubbers. And unlike in the past where he's had John Isner at his side, he and Isner have won Masters titles together. Nick Kyrgios at his side. Obviously, Kyrgios, a Grand Slam doubles winning player at this point. Sock didn't have that at this Laver Cup. He had Demon Hour, who with all due respect, makes a lot of returns, but the second serve, Demon Hour's willingness to perhaps float a forehand return every once in a while doesn't make him the ideal doubles partner for Sock. While you like the idea of you know Felix big serving, big forehanding his way with Sock to aggressive positions on the court, does that duo make enough returns? There's a lot of pressure on Sock to put his return in play, and as such, he's not able to swing perhaps quite as freely from that ad side. And then I think all of us watched that Tiafo Sock match. That was not good doubles. I mean, everyone out on court was nervous because it was finals Federer's final match. But, you know, through sheer force of will, Jack and Francis ultimately get through that match. And Lucky puts two wins on the board for Team World once again. And I hypothesized about this with my friend Gil Gross. 
if if we scrapped the team world versus team Europe format, and there was a lot of conversation about doing that after day two, particularly given, again, team Europe has typically won these events. And yes, while there are three set matches, team Europe usually ultimately ends up winning fairly comfortably. Certainly team world getting a win, put a halt to that narrative at the same time. Are we married to the Team World, Team Europe format? Do we feel particularly tied, like all of Europe is rooting for Team Europe exclusively and all of the world feels compelled to pull for the Team World athletes? I don't think that's what makes this event appealing. It's not because it's world versus Europe. It's because you have all these superstars in one location and all these superstars committed to playing for their team regardless of who those teammates are. I think that's the key thing, is the buy-in from the top players. I think you could switch things up where at the start of each event, let's say, Djokovic, you're one captain. Nadal, you're the other captain. Let's pick teams. Let's do a snake draft. You know, one, one, two, 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 et cetera, till we have full rosters. Wouldn't that be equally exciting if it's the same pool of players, but instead we get to televise a draft, we get to see what these players value, we get to see how they view, you know, the value of each of their uh, each of their peers throughout the course of that draft process. That sounds fun to me as a guy who always enjoys NFL drafts, NBA drafts, you name it. Every other sport gets to draft. Why can't we find a way to incorporate that in tennis? And certainly Laver Cup feels like the opportunity to do that. By the way, that's the sort of topic that Gil and I talked about extensively on his Monday Match Analysis show. So if you want to hear more tangents like that, go check that show out. But to go full circle here, I'm pretty sure Sock would go top three in, you know, in a, even if there were, even if the team captains were both retired players, right? You feel like Djokovic would go number one. You know, if Alcaraz was playing or Nadal was healthy, they'd go two respectively. And then I'd take Sock because, like, with all due respect to Felix, yeah, he can beat Djokovic. He can also lose a singles rubber to Matteo Berrettini. And with all due respect to Tiafo, who obviously was exceptional against Tsitsipas, gets blitzed by Novak Djokovic. Just give me the three doubles matches. I know I'm going to get out of Jack Sock. And, you know, the doubles rubbers count just as much as the singles rubbers in the Laver Cup format. Sock was excellent. He and Felix, again, come from behind 10-8. Great aggression from the both of them. I mean, having to deal with those serves, those forehands, and Felix's willingness to push forward as well as Jack's, it was a fun duo. And again, an impressive victory for them. Tough weekend for Andy Murray, who goes winless, I believe, in Labor Cup between his singles and doubles experiences. But again, Jack and Felix get the win. You know, day three matches are worth three points. So all of a sudden, 8-4 becomes 8-7. And now we've got a match on our hands. And, you know, walking onto the court, Novak Djokovic, who was dominant in his day two victory uh, over Francis Tiafo, And, you know, Djokovic that night also part of the doubles winning rubber as well. And, you know, he talked about it after the match. His wrist was bothering him. You could tell visibly he was leaving the ball short whenever he was on the forehand wing, wasn't serving with the pace and the depth that he had the prior day. And yet that's not to take anything away from Felix, who ultimately earns a 6-3-7-6 victory. Felix winning 80% of his first serve points on a 71% clip, hit 12 aces in the match against just one double fault, was able to get the break back when it felt like, or was able to, you know, put himself a set and a break ahead. And then when it felt like Djokovic was making a push back, Felix able to steady the ship down the home stretch. And, you know, again, I have said this about Felix before. I'll say it again. 
why I'm so encouraged by the 22-year-old is it just feels like as good as he can be on his best days. And he's a Grand Slam semifinalist. He's won an ATP title. We've seen him compete and beat players like Djokovic's and the the Dolls, Zverev, Tsitsipas's, etc. of the world. He always plays them extraordinarily close. We know what Felix's ceiling can be. The thing he needs to do, obviously, moving forward, match in, match out, is lift the level of his floor. And you look for Felix this season, who, by the way, somehow has snuck his way into the top eight of the points race. Felix currently sitting at number 13 in the rankings, and he's currently sitting seventh in the points race. You know, again, if I ask you, has it been a good or bad season for Felix? I think instinctually you would say, eh, it's been a fine season. You know, Felix is 40 and 23. Overall on the year, and he started out extraordinarily hot, whether it was at ATP Cup, quarterfinals, Australian Open, winning that maiden title in Rotterdam, following it up by making the final the next week in Marseille. You know, through the first two months of the year, his four losses, twice to Medvedev, one of them five sets, Australian Open quarters, once once to Fritz, and once to Rublev. He was as good as any player through the first two months of the year, and, you know, that was okay during the clay court season. And you actually look in a, you know, on surface level, losses to Nadal, Djokovic, Zverev, Korda, Schwartzman, and Musetti, like those six losses during the clay courts, you know, again, in the context of the events he played them in, they seemed a little disappointment pointing in the moment. Upon reflection, do we feel particularly bad about any of those losses? I mean, he lost two and two to Korda and Esterl. That's a bad loss. Two and six in Monte Carlo to Lorenzo Musetti, given Monte Carlo. No, no, it's Rome that typically plays a little bit faster than the others. I mean, two and six, should he ever be losing in straight sets to Musetti with his serve, his forehand? I suppose that's a question scholars can debate, but I don't feel particularly bad about that loss. Again, if you're saying, what loss do you feel bad about for Felix this year? Cressy first round Wimbledon. You know, yes, he just to lose first round at a slam, given he was the number six seed overall. That's a tough loss, but six seven six four seven six seven six. You lose on a grass court to an in four Max Cressy in a bubble. I don't think that's that bad of a loss. Now, you know, the next week he loses seven six in the third to Kubler in Newport. I'm not going to go through all of these matches. The point is, Felix forty and twenty three now overall on the year, and you look for Felix big picture numbers. He's holding 84.1% of the time. That's his sixth consecutive year of improvement. It's a career high. It's a top 20 number. He's also breaking serve 20.5% of the time, which ranks 35th amongst top 50 players, but is 0.4% above his career average. He has gotten better, even if it's slowly gotten better as a returner each of the past few years as well. And again, the serve, the plus one forehand, the weapons that will define his ceiling as a player, when they look good, they look untouchable. And I just think he has a ceiling he can hit that only so many players can match. And again, he's only 22 years old. You just feel like getting a little less stiff, developing plans B, C, and D, and you know finding a little bit more rhythm, that 75% neutral ball, even on the forehand wing as well as the backhand. They all just feel obtainable things for Felix. I like his instincts to move forward, even if I don't think he's the most natural volleyer, but 
again, against Djokovic, just played a really clean match behind that first serve. And certainly this surface at the Laver Cup, which felt like every ball on this Laver Cup court was dead, that the ball just did not bounce high at all. I mean, the ball stayed low, and Felix has the sort of weapons. It doesn't matter how slow the court is. When he's clicking, he can hit through any court. Now, again, was not Djokovic's best, but competitively, you can just tell the team environment brings out the best in Felix. And whether it was ATP Cup early in the season, you know, obviously his success in Davis Cup, his three-set win over Alcaraz a week ago, and now beating Djokovic here at Laver Cup. I don't know. You beat Nori, Sinner, Djokovic, and Alcaraz all on hard courts in a six-week stretch. I'm not quitting on Felix. I think he's still got to stay in Tier 1 when we do our big-picture next-gen tiers moving forward. I still, coming out of 2022 feel like he's going to get a slam in this 2020s decade. And I think that camp used to be, I'm going to use one of my favorite Cracked Rackets words here, there used to be a plethora of us in that camp, a big group of supporters that would say definitively Felix is going to win a slam because he was the youngest to do all these different things throughout the course of his career. That group has dissipated over time, but I'm still here. And I'm sure some of you listeners are as well. Feel free to let me know at A.L. Gruskin. But what a win for Felix on the Novak side. Yeah, he played two matches on day two after not playing for nearly three months, at least professionally on court. I don't care that it's a third set breaker. You know, I don't care that it's just one match of singles and doubles. And I'll have to do that down the home stretch of this 2022 season. It's not the same. It's your first tournament back. You're nursing, you know, you still got to callous up the body to get ready for that grind. And again, you saw him against Tiafo in his one and three victory on day two. I think more than anything else coming out of Laver Cup, one of my thoughts is I need to see Djokovic versus Alcaraz. I just need to know who's the guy going into 2022 because obviously Nadal a little bit banged up right now. Um, I just want, I need to see it. I need to see the contrast of styles. I need to see how does Djokovic hold up physically? What does Alcaraz do, you know, when Djokovic is sliding all over the place and making that extra ball, just the flexibility between the both of them? I need to see it. I need to see it again, and I need to see it on a hard court, ideally. So let's get that match, please, over the course of the next two months. But, you know, then the final thought, the Felix Sitsi, uh, the excuse me, Tiafo Sitsipas matchup, and ultimately for Francis, he wins uh, this match. I believe overcomes four match points to earn a one six seven six ten eight victory over Sitsipas. I mean, what is there to say? Francis is the guy right now to go U.S. Open semifinals. Beat Roger in his final match. Yeah, you lose to Djokovic, but the next day you bounce back. You fight off match points. You take a ten eight in the third over a top. 10, top 5 player in the world, wherever Tsitsipas is right now. I know he's clinched his spot in the year-end finals, even if he's not top 4 in the ATP rankings right now. It was just the way Tiafo does it. It's, it. Again, he's gotten so much better at plan A, which is to hit the big first serve, set his feet behind the plus 1 forehand, move in behind that first strike. Not only does plan A continue to get better and better, but just his confidence in his improvisational skills, B, C, and D, his ability to absorb and redirect pace on the backhand side, it was always exceptional. Against Tsitsipas, it just felt like he could put the backhand wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And, you know, his willingness to move forward, his flair for the dramatic, his ability to capture the energy of the crowd and use it as a catalyst for himself. And then he's just 
steal. Like, I don't know what else to say. The guy is, to quote Dick Vitale, a PTP, a prime time performer. And look, I know some people were uncomfortable with the trash talk that, Fran- you know, between France's team world, how they were treating Stefanos big picture. And I get that. And I'm not trying to write off that part of the conversation nor excuse it. I think it's a conversation we need to have with another person on this show. I just, just want to monologue about something like that. Francis is the ultimate teammate. Francis is the guy you just want to go to war with, the guy who's going to be you know, in your ear saying the things you need to hear and then ultimately performing the way his team needs him to perform in the biggest moment. And you know, looking at Monday's rankings, there are nine Americans inside the top 50. 18% of the top 50 of the ATP rankings are American men. Eight of those nine men, we're born 1997 or later. This group's going to be around for the rest of the decade. And is it Francis? Is it Taylor, the Indian Wells champion? Is it Tommy, who was so consistent for three straight months during this 2022 summer? Is it Opelka, who you know may be the most charismatic of the bunch as well? Is it players like Brooksby or Nakashima or obviously Sebi Korda? You just watch Sebi Korda play. You're like, that's what a tennis player should look like. I don't mean to disrespect you, Max Cressy. Don't worry. I'm going to say that eighth top 50 name who's born 1997 or later as well. It's a good group. It's a really good group. And you think about some players on the fringes, Marcos Giron, who I think turns 30 next year. And, you know, that's a little older, but Mackie McDonald is 27 years old. And J.J. Wolf was born in 1998. And you've got really exciting other young players like Ben Shelton, like what Ethan Quinn is doing at the Futures and now Challenger and Collegiate level. I mean, they're Alex Kovacevic earning his first ATP win over Miamir Kasmenovic. It's a lot of good American men right now. And after a dearth of talent through much of the aughts, end of the aughts, and the early 2010s, and believe me, I was there for all of it. And I hope, you know, longtime Crack Rackets listeners, those of you who have been with us since day one, know monitoring the growth of this next gen ATP American cohort. That was the foundation of this podcast from the start. It's finally manifesting itself with rewards because who were three of the members of Laver Cup uh, of Team World's first victory? It wasn't Isner. Yes, Sock was on the team, but the nucleus of the team, Taylor Fritz, who gets a win over Cam Norrie. I know Tommy Paul never plays, but I mean, Tiafo clinches over Pass. He and Sock partner together, get a win over Federer and Nadal. We've just got American men now playing in some of the biggest matches on the game's biggest stages. And after not having that for a decade, boy, is it a sight for sore eyes. And we're actually going to do a really fun podcast later this week with a very special guest to me discussing the rise of American tennis and some of the other big storylines as to how they relate in tennis to casual fans, not necessarily those of us who are trapped in the all tennis all the time bubble, but you know, has this American success punctured the larger American sporting fans conscious? That's a question I want to explore. And I think I found just the guest to help me do exactly that. But certainly much of that conversation will center around Francis Tiafo. And again, this is something I talked about with Gil, so I apologize for repeating myself. The forehand's just working now. Like after years of it being objectively, if not a liability, at worst, a weakness, at best. 
it's just not anymore. You can't pick on it on the return of serve because he knows you're going there and he's just going to anticipate and with his exceptional racket speed, hit just either a ridiculous on the rise, down the line, cross court winner right by you or... Again, by taking that ball on the rise, he's just going to take time away from you. And that's what he did best against Tsitsipas, as well as absorb so many of those plus one blows, the big forehands, and you know Tsitsipas's willingness to move forward. And look, Tsitsipas blinked. And there's a school of thought out there, those who have watched Tsitsipas play in big matches a bunch, really since that French Open final when he's up two sets to love on Novak Djokovic, whether it was, you know, uh, losing the match the way that he did against Kyrgios at Wimbledon, whether it was losing the match the way he did against Jack Draper in Canada, whether it was, you know, his inability to get over the hump at various points of this season. I'm trying to think of the most notable example for me, I think is actually a match that happened last year for Tsitsipas, if memory serves me correct. Again, obviously that Djokovic final is the one that maybe stands out above all else, but I thought, he, you know, last year I remember the Cincinnati semifinals. He got just a little shaky in that third set breaker and just, again, kind of broke down against Alex Zverev, who was just doing his typical Zverev, I'm going to push, and I hope you give me the error, and Tsitsipas just gave him pretty much seven errors in that Cincinnati breaker Tsitsipas is the subject of his own conversation. I don't know where I'm at with Stefano Tsitsipas' game because if I would have told you at the twenty at the start of the 2022 season and asked you who's got higher upside moving forward, Stefano Tsitsipas or Casper Ruud, I think it would have been 95% Tsitsipas, no-brainer answer. After the 2022 season, if I ask you who has the higher upside over the next decade, Stefano Tsitsipas or Casper Ruud, you have to think about it. You do. I mean, not only, obviously, Rude, two Grand Slam finals to Tsitsipas is one. Tsitsipas way more master success than Rude has had to date. But Rude can do it across surfaces. And while neither guy's backhand is elite, whose backhand are you taking, which is the weakness for both? You probably take Rude's. I mean, you don't probably. You take Rude's over Tsitsipas's. And Rude's developed into a top 10 server the same way that Tsitsipas has. The difference is Rude's also top 25 in break percentage. I don't know if that's ever going to be the case for Sethno Tsitsipas. I think he could perennially be a top five server. I think once we get onto clay courts, he can float in that top 25 returner range. But on the quicker surfaces, his backhand return, it just breaks down in big moments. It is still, if not a liability for him, a a weakness that opponents can easily identify and Again, short of clay courts where he's able to stand 12 feet behind the baseline and has that extra half second to really swing through the ball. I don't know where I'm at with Tsitsipas. I, I, it is a conundrum. It is certainly a conundrum. And so, again, it's something uh, that we have to keep an eye on as we move forward uh, here for, uh, for Tsitsipas. Even down the season's home stretch, year-end finals, he's won that event before. Again, indoor hard courts you think would be beneficial uh, to the current world number six. So we'll keep an eye on that. But again, final final thoughts on Labor Cup. We Go listen to my conversation with Carousel about my thought. If you want to hear my thoughts on where team tennis fits in the broader tennis ecosystem, again, you can go hear my thoughts with Gil on his Monday Match Analysis show. If you want to hear my thoughts on where Labor Cup team tennis in specific uh, specifically fits in the ecosystem, but 
this event just works. I mean, to see Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic all discussing our beloved sport together, three of not only the greatest players, but three of the greatest minds our game has ever seen. To see them joke around with one another, to see what they do to keep one another relaxed throughout the course of the match, and then just to see them talk tennis you know, to see all of these players goof around, dancing in the locker room, celebrating together, just doing things you typically have to do alone as a pro tennis player. I mean, we here at Cracked Rackets are the biggest proponents of college tennis, arguably, in the world. So I think our thoughts on team tennis are fairly clear. But if you weren't captivated by Laver Cup, I want to know why. And if you if it's a if it's an organizational issue, you were blocked by Labor Cup back when you called them out for including Alex Virov in the 2020 event, fresh off of his assault allegations. If that is why you are anti Labor Cup, I don't really have an argument against that. Like that's your prerogative. I I'm not going to try and dissuade you of that opinion. But if you actually dislike the product on court, or if you dislike the pageantry associated with the event. At Ale Gruskin on Twitter, please let me know why, because I would love to hear. Do you not like the third set breakers? I kind of do like it in this exhibition format. I don't need three and a half hours of Labor Cup tennis. I, you know, an hour thirty-five is more than enough for me. Or you know, a, a highly dramatic match still done in two hours. Given this exhibition format, I think that's fun, and maybe that's something we should think about as we look at other events moving forward. But I'm not getting into that right now. Point being. This event was amazing, as it always uh, seems to be. And again, credit to Team World, a much-needed victory. I saw, I forget who who posited the thought. I think, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on who it was on Twitter. I'm, I apologize. But they were talking about how, who, you know, who would have won Team MVP for Team World this year and who would have been the MVPs of Labor Cup if they handed out a, an event MVP at the end of each event, which, by the way, talk about a no-brainer. You know how we have the Bill Russell MVP award of the NBA Finals? Now that Federer's retired, it is the Roger Federer MVP award at Laver Cup. Tweet that out. Tony Godzik, if you're listening to this, you're not, but someone want to send this to him, let's name it the Roger Federer MVP uh, award moving forward, awarded to the top point getter or whomever the top player has voted, maybe by the media, maybe by the fans. Although if you do with the fans, then it becomes a popularity contest. So ideally, there's a more statistical based match. Let's just let the media vote. Like, I, There's a reason they let the media vote for the NBA Finals MVP. Um, I trust the tennis media perhaps more than others, but one could also argue I'm a bit biased as I'm a member of that tennis media. Nevertheless, I think we can find the right 20 voters or the right 15 voters to determine the accurate Laver Cup MVP, and I think that would be a fun conversation to have moving forward as well. Nevertheless, those are my final thoughts on Laver Cup, and again, Last plug, Monday Match Analysis, Gil Gross, my conversation with Carousel on our GSP. If you want to hear more, if you want to hear extended thoughts, further depth on where I think team tennis fits in the broader tennis ecosystem. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With that said, that's Laver Cup. Your biggest winners of the week, without a doubt, but 
Again, we also had a couple of other winners throughout the course of the professional tennis world. I want to focus on the tour-level victors here to close out the rest of today's show. Let's start with Ludmilla Samsonova because I think we can make this one fast. Five and five, she knocks out Jung Chin-Wen. Saves three of the four break points that she faced. Two of those break points come with her down 15-40 in her opening service game of the match. Perhaps most impressively, she wins this match despite making just 44.4% of her first serves. Not only is that her lowest number uh, of her of this win streak she's had, 18 and 19, since the start of August, that's her lowest number of the 2022 season. And yet, it doesn't matter because Samsonova is just firing so confidently, so freely from every position on the court. And it's transcendent power. If she wins a major, she will have property at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. We obviously already extended her weekend privileges. She can use the golf course. She can go dine, you know, in our beautiful country club lounge and, you know, use all the workout facilities, etc. because it didn't matter what Jung Chin Wen tried to do. And credit to Jung Chin Wen, who I thought was the better player through the first three quarters of the opening set. Again, had those early breakpoint chances, was holding serve with ease, was making a higher percentage of first serves than Samsonova as well, albeit not by much, but I thought she came out a little bit stronger in set number one. But, you know, the biggest difference was the way each was able to protect their second serves. And you look for Junction when she won just 40 percent of her second serve points you look for Samsonova she was able to scrap out 62 and a half percent of those second serve points now part of that was due to dead legs Jung Chin Wen the Chinese teenage sensation played three hours of tennis in her three set semifinal victory over Veronica Kudermatova to ask any player let alone a 19 year old to have to rally back in less than you know, 24 hours and play someone who hits the ball as heavy and as powerfully as Ludmilla Samsonova, you know, that's going to be a tough ask for anyone, let alone a teenager. And you could tell as the, you know, the five and five scoreline belies how on her back foot Jung Chin Wen was throughout the course of set number two. It felt like in set number two, if Jung Chin Wen did not land a first serve, she just wasn't winning the point. And again, those service numbers for Samsonova, not only does she win over 70, you know, 75% of her first serve points to win over 62% of her second serve points as well, speaks to the fact that when she had Jung Chin Wen on the run, you know, Chin Wen was just reaching more than she typically does. And she just didn't have that extra bit of spring in her step so that she was able to have that extra half second, get to the ball and swing into it powerfully like she is when she has time to set, like she does, excuse me, when she has time to set her feet. But again, that's a credit to Samsonova, who not only has FU sort of power, but also has the ability to spread the court with that power, whether it's forehand cross, forehand short angle whipped with incredible topspin, or the drive down the line on that forehand side. And then I honestly think she's even more comfortable dishing out pace on the backhand wing, certainly a little bit more consistent off that backhand side as well. It was good versus great. And in the end, great ultimately ended up winning. Now, again, not the best service performance for either player, not the longest rallies in this match either, but they're not out there to play 15, 20, 25 shot rallies. Both Samsonova and Jung Chin Wen are the moment, you know, they're both definitive. When they see their moment, they capitalize, they take that ball big and change direction either cross court or down the line. And again, Samsonova is just better 
than Jung Chin Wen on this day. And you look for Samsonova, 4-0 now in her career in tour-level finals, 3-0 since the start of August in finals. She wins uh, Cleveland. She wins Washington, D.C. Now she gets the title, her highest-level title of her career at this 500-level event in Tokyo. She's 18-1 in her last 19, has won 36 of her last 40 total sets overall. She's holding serve a ridiculous, Ridiculous 82% of the time during this run. She's winning 46.3% of her return points during this run. Those numbers would rank first and sixth, respectively, amongst top 50 players. She's been that good. I don't know how else to say it. And, you know, it's interesting. As of right now, and I did an updated look at the top 25 clubs via Tennis Abstract, who are the players that rank top 10, 15, 20, 25, respectively, in both hold and break percentage. Interesting to note that no player for the duration of the season now ranks top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Iga's 11th in hold percentage and first by a comfortable margin in terms of break percentage. So she's the closest. And I do think by the end of the year, that hold percentage will sneak back up and get her back into the top uh, 10. But you know, as of right now, there is no one who would qualify for both categories. During this two-month run, Ludmilla Samsonova would qualify for both categories. That just speaks to, again, how dominant, how exceptional she has been over the course of the past two months. And you hit the ball as big as her. I don't care who the opponent is. We saw it earlier this year in Stuttgart. Samsonova, one of the few players to get a set off of Iga when Iga was on one of the maybe the best run we've seen. I mean, arguably the best run we've seen of the 21st century in men's or women's tennis I know Djokovic fans right now are screaming, do not remember the start of the 2011 season. I remember the start of the 2011 season. I said one of, if not the best, not definitively the best run of the 21st century in regards to Iga. That said, again, Samsonova just has that sort of disruptive firepower you have to account for. And again, you better play your best because if you don't, she's going to make you pay for it. Samsonova. 5-5 five five win. She moves now to 28-15 and 15 overall on the year, up to a new career high, number 23 in the WTA rankings. Of course, on the flip side, Jung Chin Wen, now 19 years old, second highest ranked teenager in the WTA rankings. She's sitting at a new career high of number 28. And look, Jung Chin Wen's been spectacular this season. 36-16 and 16 overall, a 69% win percentage. You know the two-thirds rule. You're winning two-thirds of your matches. You continue to move up the rankings. And for Junction Win, not only is she winning two-thirds of her matches, she's doing it at places like Wimbledon, the French Open, now a 500-level event in Tokyo as well. Yeah, Junction Win's not going anywhere anytime soon. Best get ready to say the teenager's name quite frequently over the course of the next decade. That said, that was your action over in Tokyo. Let's move now stateside here to San Diego. Brandon Nakashima. I am so impressed by the floor of Nakashima match in, match out, and it starts with his improvement on the serve. You look for Brandon, 32-22 and 22 overall in the year. He's holding 84.7% of the time overall this season. That is a top 20 number, my friends. He ranks 18th in hold percentage on the year. He's holding 88.4% of the time since the start of the French Open. And since the start of the French Open, he's played one challenger, the Serbiton challenger. He lost quarterfinals to Andy Murray. Other than that, it's been exclusively an ATP schedule. He's holding, again, against pretty much an exclusive ATP schedule 88.4% of the time. 88.4% of the time. 
That would be sixth best on the ATP tour if prolonged for uh, if prorated for excuse me the whole 2022 season. Does Brandon Nakashima strike you as a serve bot? Because the numbers suggest he might be. And the eye test sort of suggests he might be as well. I mean, you look for him throughout the course of his five victories in San Diego. He faced a grand total of 15 break points. Uh, he fought off 11, oh, excuse me, he fought off nine of the 15 that he faced throughout the course of the week. And yet, in each of his matches, he won over 70% of his first serve points. He was over 55% in five of his, uh, in four of his five matches on second serve points one. He just hits his spot so well, whether it be the slice serve, both on the do side, out wide, on the ad side, down the tee. He's comfortable going flat body wide on the ad. That's a really hard serve to make. Can find the body on both sides. Can just hit all of his spots, and then is so efficient with his first strike, just hitting, you know, precision more than power, finding the corners or finding the alleys, finding the open spaces available to him, even if it's short angle, even if it's the drop shot. He's always been special driving on the backhand wing, but if he now has time to rip into and lean into his forehand, that forehand has fully developed and matured into a weapon. Brandon's got game. I don't know how else to say it. And in a 4-4 four and four win over Marcos Giron, he was just in control from the start yesterday uh, in their San Diego final. And, you know, you look for Nakashima, uh, the fact that overall in the match he hit, what, I think it was ridiculous, eight aces against no double faults, you know, three of four on his break point chances. Felt like he was up in early break so quickly and just never uh, relinquished that lead. And again, when you think about Brandon, what do you do to attack him? Forehand backswing can get a little bit big, but he's never a guy who beats himself. And, you know, we saw the level Yannick Sinner had to play to beat him in four sets at the U.S. Open. We saw the level Kyrgios had to play to beat him, what, I think was four sets, or maybe it was five sets when they played at Wimbledon. I'm blanking on uh, how many sets that match went. But, again, you look for Brandon, five sets, excuse me, yeah, in that round of 16 against Wimbledon, you know, those guys were playing their best. And... Brandon just puts so much pressure on you because he moves the ball so well around the court because there is no discernible and definitive weakness in his game and because the guy's a little meatball. Like, again, he's not 6'4". He's not 6'5". He's six foot, 6'1", but he's thick. And I say that in the best way possible. Like, Brandon Nakashima's got muscle, and a lot of it's leg muscle. Feels like his first step is really strong, and then he's sneaky fluid as well, anticipates extraordinarily well. Again, does he manufacture elite pace on his ground strokes, stroke in, stroke out? No, I don't. I don't think that's that's his game. But does he generate excellent depth? Does he open up space with himself further and further with each ground stroke that he hits? Does he have deliberate purpose in all of his shots? I do believe so. And then if you give him time, again, he's such an efficient attacker of the ball. He's going to find a way to make you uncomfortable. He has gotten so much better as a volleyer as well. And with all due respect to his opponents this week in San Diego, Svida, Kudla, Galan, O'Connell, Garon, none of them had a reliable enough weapon to hurt Brandon consistently enough that they were able to do much damage. That's not to say Brandon wasn't played close, and I think Daniel Galan's forehand was the biggest weapon he faced, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Galan was the only player to get a set off of Nakashima in this event, but 
You look for Brandon again now 23 and 10, excuse me, since the start of the French Open. Perhaps most notably, he's 20 and 2 when playing opponents ranked outside the top 50. If you can't do something elite, you're just not beating the 21 year old Nakashima. And he just turned 21. And it's just like, you know, again, there are three players born in 2001 who have won ATP titles Yannick Sinner, Brandon Nakashima, Juan Manuel Sarundolo. Obviously, Sarundolo's fallen off a little bit, uh, or at least plateaued would be the better word perhaps a little bit. Nakashima hasn't. He continues to get better and better. The break percentage finally creeping up towards that 21, 22, 23% mark, which makes sense given structurally, you feel like Nakashima is a guy who puts a ton of returns in play and, you know, again, doesn't have a discernible side to attack definitively and pick on as a returner, even if, yeah, the forehand backswing's a little bit bigger. You're not picking on the backhand, but the forehand isn't a liability. The same rant I gave about uh, about Tiafo. Eight of the nine Americans inside the top 50 right now are born 1997 or later. On January 1st, 2030, Brandon Nakashima will be 28 years old. Buckle in. It's going to be a fun decade if you're an American tennis fan. In a decade, dare I say, we have all been awaiting. On the other side, credit to Marcos Giron. Back up to number 53 in the live rankings, reaches his first ATP final. You're not going to find a nicer guy. I promise that to all of you listeners. And again, for Garon, the second serve hung up a little bit. I mean, Garon's a 0.8 version, 0.85 version of Brandon. Just, you know, again, doesn't quite hit his spots as well on the serve and perhaps doesn't quite have as much pace on that first serve. But, you know, Garon didn't do a lot wrong in this match. It had more to do about the fact that he had to create he just had he doesn't have an elite weapon you know Giron's very good at a lot of things I don't know if he's exceptional at anything and again why this match was so revealing I think you almost have to be exceptional you have to find a way to put consistent pressure on Brandon if you want to break him down and again all due respect to Giron he just wasn't quite able to do that in this San Diego final which again is a tribute to the level of Brandon Nakashima but heck of a run for Marcos Giron and sort of solidifies things for him as you look at the end of last season he had a lot of success reaching round of 16 in Paris semifinals in Sofia you know he still has to defend some points but he should get into Paris qualifying at the least maybe even get into the main draw now on his own ranking and you know, he's already defended those Sofia semifinals by making the final in San Diego. So a much-needed run for Marcos Giron. And who doesn't love two kids from California competing in a San Diego ATP final? That's just good narrative writing, folks. Shout out to the tennis gods. With that said, quickly blitz through our other two finals. How about ECAT? Katarina Alexandrova earning her second title of the 2022 season. She earns a 7-6-6 love victory over Yelena Ostapenko in uh, Seoul. Really good first set. Uh, I believe there were, what, three breaks of serve each in that first set. A lot of first strike. Go for broke. Okay, I got to go big on the return of serve because if I don't go big on the return of serve, whether it was Alexandrova to Ostapenko or Ostapenko to Alexandrova, someone was hitting a winner or an unforced error through the first five shots of this match in just about every point. And ECAT moved a little bit better. She played a better tiebreak. You know, again, was able to find first serves in the tiebreak in a way that Ostapenko wasn't. And ultimately, it's Alexandrova, who moves now to uh, a, a very impressive 32-16 and 16 overall on the season. Folks, that's the two-thirds rule. 
you win two-thirds of your matches, you're going to continue to progress up the rankings. Thus, it's no shock to see Ekaterina Alexandrova sitting at a new career high of number 21 with two titles on her resume this season. For what it's worth, there are only seven players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage in the women's game. That's the lowest number I've seen since I started monitoring the top 25 club back in 2018. Just seven players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. For what it's worth, Halep, Iga, top 15, Buzkova, who's been the 250 superstar, Pagula Jabur, top 20. I think that addition, Pagula Jabur, makes a ton of sense. Top 25, Anisimova and Alexandrova. Now, if you extend to the top 26 club, you add Danielle Collins and Coco Goff, who Collins ranks 26th, I believe, in break percentage. Goff ranks 26th in hold percentage. Oh, no, no. Other way around. Goff ranks 26th in hold percentage. Collins ranks 26th in break. I don't know. Goff ranks 26th in break percentage. Collins ranks 26th in hold percentage. Leave that in, Super Producer Daniel Westoff. If you include them, the list expands to nine names, but if you do the proper top 25 club version and don't cheat, Katarina Alexandrov would be one of just seven players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. She's holding serve a career high 71.9% of the time this season, breaking serve 38.3% as well, which is also a career high. And guess what? 27, turning 28 years old in November, smells like a prime of a career to me. And that's what we're seeing from Alexandrova. On the flip side, very disappointing to see Ostapenko go away the way she did in set number two. Played a really competitive first set, but was just miserable behind the second serve all match long. She won just 27.6% of her second serve points throughout the course of the match. It was essentially offering up approach shots for Ekaterina Alexandrova, who executed extraordinarily well every time. That's at Ostapenko 17th right now in the WTA rankings, 25 years old. Well positioned. I mean, she's in the mix at every big event, likely seated at all of them as well. And for someone who's been so often defined by her highs and lows, you look for Ostapenko this season, winning over 63% of her matches, highest metric of her career since that breakout 2017 campaign. That said, that was your action over in Seoul. Of course, your final event happened over in France, where Lorenzo Sinego earns a much-needed run to the title. You look for Sinego, title now number two, for him, three for him on the ATP tour. And by the way, Sinego becomes one of the few players and the lit Oleg at Oleg uh, underscore forever or at Anna K underscore forever, AKA Oleg S on Twitter tweeted out the list of players who have won titles on all three surfaces. Sinego is one of those guys now. Title in Antalya back in 2019 on the grass courts. Title in Cagliari back in 2021 on the clay. Now he's got the title in France on the hard courts as well. Not too shabby for the 27-year-old who earns a 7-6-6-2 victory over Sasha Bublik. Now the big takeaway, the video going around from this match, Bublik trying to hit an overhead with the handle of his racket as opposed to the face of it and the strings when it was clear he was going down, down a set and a break in that second set. Don't love to see that from a competitive standpoint, of course, even if Bublik was trying to be you know, entertaining. I don't think the intent was tankage. The intent was, well, I'm probably going to lose anyway, so if I'm going to lose, I want to lose in an entertaining fashion, which is a loser's attitude. I don't think anyone's denying that, but I don't think there was any malicious intent. Sasha Bublik wasn't attempting to disrespect the game, as it feels like some people are insinuating in making that movement. 
I mean, that said, what a week for Sinego on serve. Was broken twice in his opening match against Karatsev and once in his subsequent four matches. He ultimately, for the week, faces 14 total break points. He goes 11 of 14 in saving those break points. Saved his final six break points of the event. Didn't face a break point against Hubi Hercats in the semifinals. And look, controlled conditions, his serve, his forehand, they are not to be trifled with. I was that impressed. So, I mean, again, shout out, no doubt, to Lorenzo Sanego, uh, who with his victory now back up to number 45 in the live rankings for the 27-year-olds. You know what is now a lot easier? Hello, Miami. Hello, Indian Wells. Guess who's getting into your main draw? It's Lorenzo Sinego, much-needed title run. And it's always nice to have points stashed at the end of the year. Uh, so for Sinego, something for him to build on over the next 50 weeks, I suppose, as well. As for Bublik, you know, currently sitting at 41 in the rankings. That feels about right. He's too talented to be outside the top 50. He's too inconsistent to be inside the top 20. So honestly, 20 to 50, yeah, feels about right uh, for the big serving Bublik. But with that said... Those were your winners from the past week, and that's where things stand in the pro tennis world. Now moving forward, again, three ATP events this week at the tour level, two WTA tour level events, countless challengers, countless ITF events. We've got ITA action. That's right. Big summer college or fall college tennis events coming on the horizon. Busy times, busy times in the tennis world as always. And of course, we'll keep you up to date on everything happening in the pro tennis world here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an edit job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, for all of the latest and greatest equipment, go to tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. With that said, we'll be back tomorrow to keep you up to date on everything happening this week. My buddy Nate Walrith from Tennis Point joining me for an edition, another one of Tennis Point Tuesday. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>